Well, tonight I want to turn our attention over to uh, Psalm 25 as we'll be diving into the Word of God this evening. Psalm 25, as we have a brief introduction, is actually one of nine acrostic uh, poems or psalms, if you will, running throughout the course of the Psalter itself. Each one of them essentially begins with a new letter of the Hebrew alphabet, from A almost all the way to Z. It doesn't quite make it to the Z, so to speak. But this psalm, intentionally as such, presents to us a kind of journey. And it's a journey that I want to take us on tonight as we go through, verse by verse at a time, seeking to understand the message here from Psalm 25. See, Psalm 25, in many ways, presents to us this progressive movement from one verse to the next to the next. In many ways, this psalm serves as a kind of companion on a figurative hike, if you will. A height ascending to the heights of God's grandeur and descending back down to where we started. It's a psalm in many ways that leads us up to a certain climax in verse 10, which causes us to exult in the goodness of God. But then it leads us back down to the final verse of verse 22, leading us to a place of exulting God's grace. And so those will be our two points for the evening, that this psalm teaches us to approach God's goodness but it also teaches us to approach God's grace. Now, accordingly so that this message tonight will be, it'll feel a bit like an exploration of different themes, and intentionally so. It'll feel like an exploration of God's covenantal dealings with us. And it's ironic that we were just speaking and singing of desiring to be taught by God in the Psalms and the songs we were just singing, and desiring to be led and guided by Him, because this psalm is all about that. Again, this will resemble a kind of figurative hike, a hike in which we are led to behold the creative power and sustaining providence of our Almighty God. And as we traverse through this psalm, we'll come to learn that all of our troubles truly do pale in view of God's magnificence. We'll learn from the psalm that the dominance of our enemies is indeed vanquished by the mighty power of God's friendship of all things. And we'll also learn that all of our doubts will begin to dissipate as we arrive at a more sure and steadfast faith that is presented here in this text. All that to say, our big idea for the evening, our main message is simply this, that with the Lord, we can certainly have confidence, even in the midst of contingencies abounding. Again, to reiterate, with the Lord, we can have confidence in the face of contingencies abounding. So with this thought in our minds, let's go ahead and turn our attention to Psalm 25 as we give our attention to the reading of God's Word. We'll go ahead and read through the whole of the psalm here. This is a psalm of David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and it says this, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord. 
Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inhabit or inherit rather the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble, and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes, and with what violent hatred they hate me. O oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. And finally, redeem Israel, O oh God, out of all of his troubles. This is the word of God. It is forever faithful and true and given to us in love. So with this fresh in our minds, let's go ahead and lift up our souls to God. God, we ask this evening as we dive into your word and seek to mine the, the treasure house that is here of all of the riches of your glorious grace, we ask that you would be honored in this searching of your scripture for truth, that we would see it, that we would find it, and that the Spirit would apply it to us. We ask that Christ would be magnified in this place, that this would be a time that is holy and set apart for you, so that we would be blessed as your hearers by your preached word. Speak through me as your mouthpiece, O Lord, and speak primarily through your word to us, to our very hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, again, with the Lord, we can have confidence even in the midst of contingencies abounding. Now, I don't say this from a place of ignorance or obliviousness, but rather one of faith, faith that has, like all of us here, been tested in many ways. Because true faith deals with the reality of life head on. It is not ignorant of the hardships that we face all around us. See, whether we realize it or not, each and every single one of us here has come to this place of worship, whether we be lighthearted or heavy-hearted alike, each one of us has come carrying a vast array of various distresses, fears, and concerns. Things that we hold tightly, things that we have been shouldering for far too long. Now some of these concerns or fears may be untrue, or they may be irrational. But more often than not, these things that we shoulder throughout the week are perfectly valid causes for concern. After all, we live in a depraved culture. A culture that is admittedly spiraling out of control, left and right, so it seems, all around us. It is constantly forsaking God, and we are living the brunt of this rebellion in our own souls even now. It promotes all forms of wicked rebellion and even sensuality in our own age. As a brief example, even a couple weeks ago, at the beginning of June, a well-known and well-loved Christian publishing company, which I won't name here, um, they openly endorsed the whole LGBTQ plus movement. 
And as Christians, many of them, through social media and letters and whatever have you, tried to challenge this new position that they brought on, they were, they were just burnt to the ground, dismantled and forsaken and ignored and belittled. That's a Christian company right there. Thinking of our own retirement accounts in this season, many of us in this economy that we find ourselves in are finding ourselves uh, reaching and, and feeling the pain of an economy that is beginning to suffer. We feel like much of our overall assurance in this economy is even at a new low of sorts. We feel and we know that civil protections that we've enjoyed are being dismantled. Many of us see it on a day-by-day -day basis in the workforce and wherever else have you. Justice is being undermined. And the integrity of our nation has continuously been called into question over the last several years now. These things are just a few of the major concerns that we, as believers here in our own culture, are facing on a day-to-day -day basis. The major distresses in our own land, let alone the distresses that we face in our own lives. It's no wonder, then, that levels of anxiety and depression and the like are at all-time record highs here in America. So you and I both now live in a world that is just full of contingencies that basically tells us to build our houses, the houses of our lives, with cars, things that won't last. And so the question remains for us then, is there any refuge from the strife? Is there redemption for our souls? Well, Psalm 25 answers that exact question for us. It provides us with the most assuring of all answers, in fact, because it tells us that we are here to learn to build our lives upon the rock of our salvation. How? By approaching his goodness and his grace. See, unlike many of the Psalms or the Psalter itself that deal with various stressors and forms of anguish of the, of the soul, Psalm 25 is not one of deep anguish or distress per se. It's rather one that's marked by a kind of calm and uh, quiet maturity. Did you notice that as well as we were reading it? There's a sense of a mature faith there that underlies the whole of the psalm. The late Presbyterian pastor James Montgomery Boyce, who many of you are familiar with, once described this psalm as being, in quote, a thoughtful prayer from one who knows that the only adequate foundation for any worthwhile life is God, period. Accordingly, you'll notice that this psalm is highly organized. It's not one of chaos or distress. It's actually a very methodical psalm. And it guides the fellow reader or singer, quite literally here, swiftly along from one degree of mercy to another. Here in the first paragraph, we begin to see this unfold before us. In verses 1 through 3, we see David opening up this prayer with the following words. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. What does that mean? See, throughout Scripture, that saying, the lifting up of one's soul, is always a direct reference to this idea of prayer. Now, as we know, prayer is by far the most intimate expression of faith that we can ever bring before our holy God. Prayer is never to be a show, as Jesus condemned, of the Pharisees. Prayer is never to be a 
posture or display of our own piety. Rather, prayer is always in every place to be a humble presentation of the whole person, mind, body, soul, and strength to the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But for as personal as prayer truly is, we are to be instructed in how to pray. Because if we're being honest, we often forget how to do this, as simple as it sounds. Here, David, as the king of Israel, is essentially then teaching his people through Psalm 25 to use this acrostic poetry to, to actually understand how to worship God aright. See, this language is intentionally didactic. There's those words of teach me, make me to know your ways, guide me, all throughout them. And this is the language that God, in fact, wants us to use as we even come to him and pray to him. Lord, teach me. Lord, guide me. Lord, make me. See, God wants us to incorporate this kind of humble, teachable spirit into our prayer lives. And not just into our own lives of prayer, but to then even teach others, expressly here in this psalm, children, as it refers to and even those whom we disciple by way of that covenant. These words then in Psalm 25 serve us to, as they lead us then to treasure and approach boldly the storehouse of mercy, mercy that does not ever put to shame. So it's fitting that David then initiated his prayer with such a sublime confidence in verses two through three as it follows. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame, rather, they shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Now, in our culture, we often think of shame as being a kind of embarrassment. That moment we've all experienced when your face turns that beet red color as you do something just totally embarrassing. And hopefully those moments are rare, right? <laughs> Maybe not for some. <laughs> I put myself in there. But those moments signify to us this idea of embarrassment. Scripture itself, though, on the contrary, has a much deeper, more nuanced understanding of shame than just the idea of embarrassment, messing up in front of people. See, biblically speaking, shame is literally the absence of hope. It's the overwhelming feeling in our gut when we finally admit that something that we have long trusted in has proven to be unworthy of our trust and our devotion. We feel hopeless or ashamed in those moments. It's those times when we realize that the plans that we were banking on have fallen through, or the friends that we have relied upon have proven to be untrue. It's in those times when we feel ashamed. But Psalm 25 verse 3 gives us hope. It tells us this much, that though we can and we will feel ashamed by even the finest and best things in this life, the best of relationships, the best of conditions. God himself will never put us to shame by nature of who he is. And so the psalmist leads us in helping us to understand that we can indeed rest assured in this fact because of God's own words to his people. We will not be ashamed if we hope in him. This language is picked up excuse me, later on in Isaiah 49, verse 23. <clears throat> where it says, here, uh, from God, comforting his people in Isaiah 49, those who wait for me 
will never be put to shame. There's a sort of unanimity here between the idea of waiting upon God and hoping in Him, casting that faith futuristically upon Him and His promises. And this concept is seen running all throughout the Old Testament as well, especially. We see that same language, waiting upon the Lord, in Psalm 17, Psalm 31, Isaiah 28. And the Apostle Paul, in Romans 5, verse 5, picks up on the same theme when he declares to Christ's own people, hope does not put us to shame. And so in our seasons of waiting upon the Lord to act on our behalf, this promise for us encourages us and invites us to hope in Him with a faith in God's character and a real vibrant anticipation of what His kindness will afford to us down the road. See, divine shame, as Psalm 25, verse 3 says, divine shame is actually for the treacherous, those outside of Christ, if you will. But hope-filled waiting is purposed for the redeemed ones. So what is the nature of hope, then? Hope readily casts its anchor to the very throne room of heaven and secures it there. For if our faith is tethered to Christ and Christ alone who sits on that higher throne, it will not disappoint us or shame us because Christ himself cannot and will not ever shame or abandon us. Church, do you know this to be true? If so, then we must think honestly about the things that bring us earthly disappointment or earthly shame, if you will. See, our early disappointments, they all arise when our hearts begin to try to dismantle our earnest trust in anything that is lesser than God. How often do we trust in the figurative chariots or horses of men rather than the king of all kings who is already ruling and reigning on his throne? See, earthly disappointments and shame attend us, even as believers, when our stock is found in the successes of the economy, or the educational system, or our elected officials, let alone the work of our own hands, the houses that we build, or the relationships that we have fostered and cultivated. Taking pride in any of these things will be to our detriment as believers. And more importantly, taking solace, or comfort, stability, in any of these things, will lead to a weakened faith in God Most High. So church, herein lies the temptation for each and every one of us. See, the collapsing of our little kingdoms, if you will, will inevitably, inevitably make us feel like God has abandoned us. Have you experienced this lately? See, thinking of your own life in the past year, when, not if, but when have you felt as though God has left you in the dust and moved on without you. Most likely, when you felt this way, this was a result of enemies surrounding you, people out to get you, enemies that were actual or perhaps even conceptual. But see, fear of conflict that is beyond our control naturally drives us inward upon ourselves. It turns us inward, as Martin Luther once said. It actually suffocates our own prayer life when it goes left unchecked, when these enemies surrounding us get the better of us. 
It's no wonder, then, that we feel God's absence in these times when we're not lifting up our souls to prayer or right, uh, to God or right in prayer, rather. Similarly, the, the weight of personal sins will crush our spirits if left unchecked. Shame and guilt, then, both drive us alike away from God's bodily care for us. But a faith, on the contrary, that is rooted in Christ and is purposed to mature in time, sees all of these forms of shame and guilt, whatever they look like, for what they are, as enemies of our faith in Him. And so this faith chooses then not to hide, but to rather run quickly to the arms of God who hears us. A mature faith will seek God out, the one who hears us, the one who knows us, who sees us, and who loves us as his own beloved children of the promise. This is why in Psalm 25, verse 4, King David humbly asked of the Lord this following request. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. Why? For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Now, John Calvin notes in his commentary that the process of knowing God's ways is, in fact, an intentional alignment of our rule of life, or in other words, the way that we order our lives, according to God's statutes on our own. In other words, we are, as Christians, called to a mature faith, one that will be indeed weathered, stricken, beaten against, and even attacked by the enemy on all sides. But we are called to a mature faith that will refuse to succumb to the pit of despair. This mature faith is seen in Proverbs 10, 9, in that this mature faith produces integrity. Proverbs 10, verse 9 says that whoever walks in this kind of integrity walks securely. And so Christian integrity is a sign of maturity. It's a byproduct of faith that is bound to the path of righteousness, come whatever may. Friend, isn't this the kind of spiritual maturity that you desire in your own life? A faith that goes beyond the sorrow. It truly is. Because the leading of God in the day-to-day produces in us all kinds of spiritual benefits. Benefits that include a levelness of mind, a truly integrated heart that desires God, and wisdom in discerning His will. But this leading does not happen arbitrarily. Rather, this happens as the Holy Spirit attends to our souls with the knowledge of three things in particular that we see here in Psalm 25. Favor, truth, and love. And we don't have time to explore the depths of these elements of favor, truth, and love in verses 4 through 10 as we find them. But as a brief way of summarizing them, we see favor here, verses 4 through 5, in terms of God's affections for us. Grace that is given to us, secured by the salvific and atoning death of Christ on the cross for our sins. We see truth in verses 6 through 7. Truth in our readiness to repent of our sins and our learning to fear God rightly and be so led by the faithful guidance of the Holy Spirit. And finally, we see love in verses 8 through 10, as it surfaces there in that paragraph, love in regard to walking in his unending mercy. 
And to touch upon that idea just briefly, that this mercy that we see here, this chesed kind of love that we see in Psalm 25, is far more than just an absence of God's wrath for sin, righteous wrath of that. Rather, this mercy is by definition a covenantally driven compassion. We see this same exact love, mercy, compassion displayed in Isaiah 63, verse 15. See, Isaiah 63 describes God's covenantal mercy as being this stirring of God's inner parts for us, as the text says. This is that same love from the bowels, so to speak, of God himself, his innermost being for you that chose you from eternity past to be his own beloved possession. And so Psalm 25, 1 through 10, works together as a whole to teach us to approach God's goodness. And it caps it off there in verse 10. This then leads us to our second half of the psalm, verses 11 through 22. And these verses in particular, again, teach us to approach God's grace with humility of heart. See, verse 11 begins this new ascent down the mountaintop of God, so to speak, with this humble approach. It says this specifically, For your namesake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. This echoes the same sentiment that we saw earlier in verse 7. That verse that said, Remember not the sins of my youth. David then comes right back to it and parallels that same idea here on the descent, if you will. But here David is not just recalling the earliest moments of his sinful rebellion as a child against God. Yes, even children sin, believe it or not. But rather, David focuses on the ongoing transgressions that he feels the weight of in his life. See, doctrinally speaking, this recognition of the abundance of guilt from the beginning of our lives to the end serves to remind us not just of the depth of sin's root in our lives, the idea of total depravity or radical corruption in our hearts, but it serves really to show us the greater depth of God's saving grace toward us in the person of Christ. See, David here was speaking under the shadow of the Old Covenant. He was looking forward, even here in this writing, to God's grace that alone can pardon and cleanse from within. The circumcision of the heart, if you will. And verses 12 through 15 go on to speak of this kind of grace that can indeed pardon and cleanse from within. These verses here, 12 through 15, speak of grace in a personified it speaks of grace that causes our hearts to fear God as the Holy One. Grace that instructs us and teaches us according to His law. Grace that leads us by the hand to well-being with blessings abounding. But it also leads us to a place of recognizing that these blessings abound not just to us, but to our offspring as well. There are covenantal blessings even here in this text for our own children as they grow up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. But even further, this grace is personified all the more in that idea of God's friendship. It says this, that essentially the friendship with the Lord is the thing in which we 
find our disclosure of his good will for us. You may in your footnotes have this word friendship uh, there defined and explained in your own English copy of God's word. The Hebrew literally is not just the idea of friendship, but so much bigger than that. It's really this idea of the secret counsel of God, understanding his will, if you will. And this secret counsel signifies that this friendship is not just an intimate, familial kind of companionship with us and God. This is really a restored communion with him. Something that can only be restored by grace. And so this kind of communion in which sin is forgiven and the bonds of such friendship uh, can be, uh, cannot be severed is what we see here in you. It is a grace-filled friendship that doesn't just protect or inform. It's a friendship that transforms. The Puritan William Fenner described this friendship or secret counsel of God as being a friendship that is hidden, and properly so. Categorically speaking, and he talks about three ways that it's hidden. Categorically speaking, it's hidden by those, or from those rather, who are outside of Christ. This friendship with God can only be known by those who are in him. Secondly, the friendship of God, the riches of this friendship even, are pragmatically hidden from those who are living, even as believers, in ignorance toward the depth of his mercy, and who are trying to live life on their own terms, apart from his sovereign grace. And thirdly, Fenner, the Puritan, goes on to say that this friendship is even hidden in many ways from those who fail to taste and see God's goodness on a daily basis. I hope that God would grant us this kind of deeper intimacy with him, that we would not be those people who despise or even overlook God's friendship in any way. But church, if you have tasted seen such things, the friendship of God, the knowledge of him and his love, you know full well that there are seasons, admittedly so, in this life, where we feel like that intimacy of his friendship is lacking. We find this in times when distractions abound. We find this in times where desperation creeps in and where dereliction all too easily becomes our own disposition. But thank God that his kindness continually leads us to repentance, as Romans 2 tells us. See, the lifter of our heads often uses such times of earthen joylessness to pluck away at our heartstrings and to cause us to desire him as if for the first time. This is why David cried out in verse 15, my eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. This, brothers and sisters, is a deeply personal portrait of God's holistic deliverance of us. Daily deliverances even. Plucking us out of the net one thing at a time. And so here David is not just recounting God's faithfulness in years gone by, but here he's actually anticipating a royal divine intercession that will remain as long as the presence of sin is here in this life, in this world. And so his responsive prayer is then seen accordingly in verses 16 through 21, which hope for and long for this kind of intercession from on high. We see all kinds of imperatives that saturate this section. Verse 16, verse, uh, 
verse 16 rather, through 21, tell us all kinds of things like this. Turn to me, be gracious to me, consider my affliction, forgive all my sins, consider how many are my foes, guard my soul. And on and on and on it goes. But each one of these personal imperatival requests to God is there with a reason. See, each one of these is a prayer of sorts. They are honest prayers that we ourselves are to pray. They are repeated prayers, but they're never tired prayers. Do you feel like your prayer life is getting tired of praying these same things? May not be so. Rather, these lead me, guide me, make me, forgive me kind of statements showcase to us a kind of life of prayer that does not hesitate to come to God no matter what the circumstance is, for it desires to know him and be known by him. And all these personal prayers then culminate in that final request of verse 21. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. This is that final personal request right here. Each verse of Psalm 25 has been progressively moving forward with these concepts of approaching God's goodness and grace from a very personal standpoint. And each line in the Hebrew text has progressed consecutively throughout the alphabet from verse 1 through 21. But something miraculously remarkable happens here in verse 22. See, the acrostic poem, if you will, it comes to an abrupt stop right there in verse 21. And in verse 22, it begins with a different letter, and a new prayer is born. Right there in verse 22. It says this, Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Now, doesn't this seem a bit peculiar to you? That all of a sudden, David's train of thought just stops there after he finishes praying his personal hymn and prayer. See, this prayer could have easily ended at verse 21. This psalm, as we know it, would serve us well as a psalm of instruction, as a word in how to approach God with a spirit of teachability and humility. But that was not what God fully intended. See, in verse 22, there's a different purpose that we see here. It is no longer from the vantage point of David as a king ruling over the throne of his people, or even as a prophet, speaking the mysteries of God to his people. Rather here, that statement, redeem Israel, O God, out of all of his troubles, is intercessory. It is priestly. It's the kind of prayer that a priest would offer during the time of sacrifice for sin. It would be so easy then to pass over this final statement in verse 22, this final breath as David breathed it out, without understanding the depth of its beauty and the compassion that is expressed here for God's people. See, here in verse 22, we see not David necessarily, but rather a better David. We see a typology of Christ here in verse 22 who continually makes intercession for his own. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his trouble. Here, that word Israel is not referring to the nation, the visible people of Israel as a whole, but rather to the church of God, even there in the Old Covenant, 
the whole number of the elect whom he would redeem by his own blood. That word Israel is used in the exact same way in Galatians 6 verse 16, in which the Apostle Paul prayed that peace and mercy would be upon the Israel of God. Peace, it comes only through the death of Christ in our place, and mercy through his ever-living priestly intercession and preservation of us. And for, for, for further proof of this idea, we see this same idea expressed later on in Psalm 130. Psalm 130 verses 7 through 8 shows this parallel passage for us, this, this Old Testament promise yet to be disclosed. We see in Psalm 130 that the people of Israel uh, would make this pilgrimage up to Jerusalem, what we know of as the Song of Ascents. And every year they would attempt to come up to this temple to make a sacrifice for sin, on especially the Day of Atonement. And as they were heading up to the Temple Mount, the idea of sacrifice fresh in their minds, their voices couldn't help but break forth in singing this prayer in particular. O Lord, or rather, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And here's the promise again. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Friends, do you hear the similarity then between Psalm 130, verse 8, and Psalm 25, verse 22? If so, it's from the very heart of God toward his own. From a promise that was long foretold ago in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, 15, that was unveiled to his saints in the fullness of time in the person and atoning work of Jesus Christ, that with him is indeed plentiful redemption. See, in Jesus alone, there is redemption from all of our iniquities and the consequence of sin that we have each incurred in our own strength. In Jesus alone, there is redemption from our deepest distresses, deliverance for our souls. And in Jesus alone, there is a steadfast love that is made known to us, that leads us out of our sorrows and out of our distresses and into the joy and fellowship of his perfect peace. Do you believe this? In closing, I want to remind us with this message then of Psalm 25. See, again, with the Lord, there can be confidence in the midst of contingencies abounding. So if you find yourself, friend, in a season of waiting, a place of longing with eager expectation for God to move in your life, pray that your soul's highest affections would be lodged nowhere else but the shelter of the Almighty. For truly, as the psalmist said, all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that we have had the privilege to come before you and hear your word declared to us. We thank you, O oh Lord, that this truth that we have contemplated in this time is not just something to contemplate or, or to bring to our minds, but something to own deep within our souls. And so we ask God that as we meditate upon these words, that they would be uh, truth ringing forth and resounding within our souls throughout the rest of this week. We ask that this would be um, 
continuing offering unto you, recognizing that you are the God of grace and the God of goodness. So we pray all of these things in the mighty name of Jesus.